good morning, and would you please join me opening up a Bible to Galatians chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to follow along with us in a Blue Pew Bible. You can find that on page 975. As we have arrived at the final chapter of Galatians, and Lord willing, we have just three sermons remaining in this letter from the Apostle Paul, written to a multicultural church in the city of Galatia. And much of chapter 6 will answer this question. What does a spirit-filled church look like? Coming off of last week, the common, uh, popular story, uh, passage of the fruit of the Spirit, we saw Paul kind of connect all the dots of the major themes of this letter, of kind of starting out emphasizing a right understanding of the gospel. And the reason why it was so vital to uh, affirm and clarify that is because that gospel of Jesus Christ rightly understood will lead to and ultimately culminate in a right way of living out the gospel of Jesus Christ. A life that walks in the spirit, a walk that denies the flesh, that doesn't just remain in your head kind of certain facts and knowledge, but actually is seen in the way we live. Belief in a Christ-centered gospel that leads to a spirit-filled life. And you could read the end of chapter 5, and it easily could have been the end of the letter. Right? It's a strong finish at the end of chapter 5. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Amen. But it doesn't end. There, there's a kind of connecting verse at the very end of 5 into chapter 6 that now Paul's going to kind of give some very practical examples of what a Spirit-filled church looks like. And I think there's a couple reasons why he does that writing to this particular church. Uh, what we know, what we've seen over the last several months is that there's a pretty significant cultural divide within the membership of the Galatian church, particularly between Je uh, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Within the Roman Empire in the first century, there was real hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. There was a cultural divide but also a racial-ethnic divide that we've spoken about throughout this series, which, which fueled the distortion of the gospel by the leading kind of Jewish false teachers that Paul has spent so much time addressing in this letter. And so it's not far-fetched to think that Paul could have said at this point, um, or could have said in writing this letter, you know what, guys, this is not working out. Having you in the same church. We thought it was a good idea. It's not a good idea. So let's go your separate ways. Let's form two churches in your city, the Jewish church and the Gentile church. And I don't know, maybe you guys can come together for a combined prayer meeting once a year. Maybe you can do a pulpit swap, make a big deal of it. But by and large, stay, your separate, stay in your separate lanes. This is too messy. It's too hard for you to be brothers and sisters in the same church. Paul does not do that. Rather, he doubles down to clarify the gospel again and again, to exhort them to walk by the Spirit, and now finishes with practical ways of, hey, how can that actually look like in your church? Further, it's uh, nearly universally agreed that of Paul's letters to churches in the New Testament, Galatians is the first, which is to say it's the oldest. It's the first letter he wrote. 
So if at this point, still relatively early on in the spread of the gospel and the planting of churches, that Paul said, nope, not working to mix cultures in this way, let's reboot and start again. Think about the impact that would have had on the church then. Think about the impact it would have now. Maybe we don't have to think too hard about the impact because there's still a sense of that amongst churches even in our country Thankfully, Galatians does not end in chapter 5, because we get to chapter 6, and Paul's going to give five distinctions or markers of a spirit-filled church in the first 10 verses. We're going to look at the first two this morning in verses 1 through 5. Then next week, we will see the final three in verses 6 through 10, all right? Always keep them coming back, all right? Keep it coming back next week. That's, that's not just the strategy. This is purely for time purposes, but two this morning, three for next week. Galatians 6, verses 1 through 5. Paul writes, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. All right, as we set it again, did anyone pick up on the seemingly blatant contradiction in those few verses? Verse 2, bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. Literally 30 words later, verse 5, for each will have to bear his own load. What's going on? We're going to find out together. I admit I did have an initial thought, wondering that as Paul was sitting down and writing this letter, did he think for a moment, you know what, that might be a little confusing for them, and then just shrug his shoulders and go, and ah, they'll figure it out. Um, I don't know, maybe that's heretical to even think that, but I admit that thought crossed my mind. Um, so let's figure it out this morning. There are five markers of a spirit-filled church in the first 10 verses to this morning. Number one, a spirit of restoration. Number two, a spirit of burden-bearing. Spirit of restoration, spirit of burden-bearing, starting with, number one, a spirit of restoration. And what you'll begin to see here is that the spirit-filled church, according to the New Testament, is primarily about how believers relate to one another more than it is about miraculous signs and wonders. I wonder when you think spirit-filled church, what's the initial thoughts, images that come into your head? I always love this quote from Pastor Tony Morita. Uh, we'll have it on the screen. He kind of says it this way, on the, you know, commenting on this passage. He says, quote, This is often overlooked. Life in the Spirit involves healthy relationships within the body of Christ. I remember hearing a story about a pastor in New York. A woman in the congregation said to him, Pastor, we need to see more signs and wonders. We just haven't seen enough signs and wonders. The pastor responded, Ma'am, over there sits a lady who has been evicted from her apartment with her children. I would consider it a sign and wonder if you would take them into your house to live for three months. What kind of signs and wonders are we thinking about with a spirit-filled church? I'm actually less against those maybe kind of popular signs and wonders than you may think I am, but I think when it comes to biblically, what is the biblical kind of clear exhortations of what a spirit-filled church looks like, Galatians 6 is kind of 
One of the passages that is ground zero for that. Spirit-filled churches are marked by healthy relationships in the local church. So again, spirit of restoration, he writes, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. This is important right off the bat. Paul is not just writing and addressing the pastors and elders in the church of Galatia. Who, who is he writing this particular exhortation to? It's in the text there, you who are spiritual. And again, in our modern ears, our modern context, you might mistakenly read that as a certain small group of Christians in the church. The ones who are like really spiritual, you know, like really mature, like really serious about their faith. Those in touch with the spirit in their lives. But Paul's context is far broader and simpler than you might think. When he says spiritual, he means those with the Holy Spirit, which is to say all believers. This exhortation is to all believers. The Spirit indwells all those who put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so the work and the ministry of restoration is the ministry of the entire church. Here's what that means. Every single one of us is on the restoration team. All right, you don't even have to sign up for it. All right, like you, there's no QR code to register for this one. All right, like you're, you're just in. If, if this is your church, you are on the restoration team. And, and the most common illustration of the church that we see in the New Testament is that of a family. It's a faith family. Brothers and sisters in Christ and, and church leaders are the spiritual fathers and the spiritual mothers. And so I think biblically the predominant marking of our interaction in the church is not one of authority and submission, but one of a family of God. And here's what we know from our quote-unquote nuclear families to our church families. Every family has problems. Every family has problems. Every family has members that get jammed up, that fall into traps of the enemy, who, who give in to the works of the flesh, like some of those listed in chapter 5 that Paul just went through, and others. And so what this means is that if we are part of a church, we ought not to be surprised when family members sin. We ought not be surprised when that happens. Because a healthy church which is something we talk about a lot at Grace. We strive to be a healthy church. That a healthy church is not healthy because all of its members are just good all the time. A healthy church is healthy when it moves towards those who are entangled with sin in a spirit of restoration. Healthy church is not just good, healthy members all the time. You never get jammed up. A healthy church is that those who are walking in the spirit walk towards those who are entangled with a hope for restoration. If you're not convinced yet, let's look at what James writes in his epistle. I think he says it more clearly. James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. He writes, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You cannot bring back somebody who's wandering from the faith 
unless you go after him. The ministry of restoration is vital. You could say it is the most vital ministry of every church because it is the most ongoing, ever-present ministry of a spirit-filled church. And so if we kind of unpack that, there's two ways that can go wrong. Uh, One is the kind of church where there is no restoration. And in a hyper-individualistic culture of our day, this is kind of tempting for us. You know what? Everyone just mind their own business. And maybe we might even begin to spiritualize that in a certain sense that says, you know what? It's actually more loving if I don't get involved out of fear of being judgmental. I'll just kind of let you do what you want. I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to go after anyone to, with a hope to restore them. That's, a, that's edging on the, you know, I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. We all know we're not perfect. Like, so who am I to say anything or address anything or to restore anybody? You see what I mean? It could be kind of a spiritual cover off a real just unwillingness to get involved. And what emerges out of that would be a church culture where um, holiness is not pursued or ever really talked about. Uh, sin can be shrugged off. And what really happens is this struggle um, where, where, where people who struggle and people who are broken, they're kind of seen more as a, a, of an encumbrance than they are someone to be uh, pursued. Like they, they kind of disrupt the flow of ministry, those people who mess up. That can be the culture that can start to kind of permeate throughout the church that doesn't restore. Like we don't want to waste our time restoring. It's messy work. It often takes time. That would take away from our cool programs we want to promote. Our exciting growth that we want to keep telling everybody about. The celebratory things that are more fun, not the spirit of restoration. And so as a result in this church, what I think you would begin to see happen is that no one reveals sin. And those who are really struggling and need someone to come and restore them, look around and go, you know what? Everyone around here seems really put together. No one really struggles in this church. Everyone just seems good all the time. And I'm struggling. I must not belong here. And then those people eventually drift away and pretty much nobody notices. Maybe even at its worst, people think, okay, they're gone. We don't even have to be guilty about that anymore. Maybe I'm being extreme. Maybe not. I think another danger here is those who are caught in sin must think, actually, it's not that big of a deal to be caught in sin. So they just go on sinning. And the damage that they do to themselves, the damage they do to the church and others within the church ends up hurting the church in various ways over time. This is the result of a church who does not have a ministry of restoration. The second way this can go wrong, the other end of the spectrum, if you will, is harsh, quick restoration. Again, the other end of the spectrum where sin is kind of obsessed over. Everyone's kind of hunting for those caught in sin. And those who do struggle are harshly dealt with, are harshly talked about from the pulpit, um, within small groups, interpersonal conversations where just the, the tone, the tenor of those conversations kind of adds shame and does not remove it. This can be hard to pin down at times, but again, there's a cultural, general sense amongst the members that, that those who, who struggle with sin are, are kind of talked about in a certain way that is prideful. Like, can you believe them? Can you believe what they did? Perhaps the leadership and the elders are quick to punish. They look forward to those aspects of those elders' meetings. When can we kind of come, on, come down hard on people? How can we confront people? 
be quick to remove them, quick to exercise church disciplines in ways that are a little bit out of whack. As a result, in this church, one would get the feeling that this is not a safe space for me to reveal struggle. If I'm struggling, i got to try to hide it as best as I can, or else they're coming. There's a fear of condemnation. They perhaps see how others are being treated or have been treated and talked about, and they're like, man, no way I'm revealing that anymore. And again, what probably happens is similar to the first church, eventually walk away. I don't belong here. So if those are two maybe extreme ways to get it wrong, but maybe not, maybe pretty common, what is the right way? Paul gives us the right way. The right way would be gentle and sober restoration. Both those words matter, gentle and sober a spirit-filled church that engages in gentle and sober restoration. It doesn't purposely avoid family members that are entangled in sin, but it moves towards those who are struggling with a spirit of gentleness for the purpose of restoration. Gentleness does not mean avoidance. Gentleness doesn't mean avoiding hard situations and handling situations but it means handling them with care. The the Greek word for restore in verse 1 means literally to put back together. Like like a fractured bone needs to be kind of put back together. And we know that either a surgeon needs to reset a bone or a cast can be put on someone where a bone can heal itself over time, but it needs to be handled with care so a cast will protect it. And if you're a surgeon who resets bones, you better be gentle. It was actually this past week, uh, there was a guy at the gym uh, who who shared with me that his two-year-old had just broken his leg the day before, coming out of a bouncy house. All right, so there you go. For all you parents of young kids heading into a summer of bouncy houses, all right, you didn't need more fear instilled into you, but there you go two-year-old coming out of a bounty house, broken leg. Think about putting a hard cast on the leg of a two-year-old. That requires care. That requires gentleness to see the bone reset, to see the bone restored. So gentle restoration, but I gave you another word. The, The second word was sober. Why? Because Paul gives almost an, uh, um, a strange warning right after he gives this exhortation. Look, if you have your Bibles up, open, look back at verse 1. He says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. What does he mean by that? What does he mean to keep watch on yourself as you seek to move towards others in restoring them? Again, a couple things. One, he says, keep watch on your pride of gloating over other people's sin. Here's the dark side of our souls, even within the church, that we have to be honest about. There are times where we secretly enjoy it when those in our faith family struggle. That we secretly find some kind of revel in it. Perhaps our first thought is not to restore them or pray for them, but Man, wait until so-and-so hears that. And you get on the phone, and you fire off that text, or you make that call, hey, did you hear yet? 
Listen to this. External pride. It could be internal pride where you use other people's struggle to make you feel better about yourself. Think about the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18 that prayed, God, I thank you I'm not like other men. God, I thank you I'm not like, and then he goes on to list a bunch of known kind of groups of sinners at that time. I think there's another temptation here, though. I think there's a temptation that can emerge when you are seeking to restore someone and you find in the middle of that sin is really messy and the enemy is really tricky and there are some really hard situations, not just as a pastor or a leader in the church, but as a member in the church that's seeking restoration of others in your faith community where you get so immersed in it, it begins to dominate your thoughts, it begins to control your emotions, and it maybe even tempt you to do the same sin that you were helping somebody else get out of. It is sobering for me how many stories of pastors who end up in an affair that started in counseling a woman who was struggling with her own marriage. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. You cannot engage in the ministry of restoration without the Holy Spirit. If you do so, you are in vulnerable territory. But when you walk in the Spirit and you're willing to restore in the midst of biblical community, do not be shocked by sin in your church. Don't be shocked by family members who get jammed up. But rather, see yourself as someone who can seek to pray for them, seek to restore them gently as you keep watch over your own heart. That's number one. That's a marker of a Spirit-filled church. Number two, a spirit of burden-bearing. Verse two, it's pretty clear right there. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Second marker, second very practical outworking of a spirit-filled church. This is similar to the work of restoration, being that um, burdens we might bear within the body might include sin uh, that we engage in that places a burden on us. Sin creates burden, yes. But this extends far beyond burdens that might just come from sin. That we might need restoration of burdens that we bear that is not a result of our own flesh. The reality is, every single one of us in this church, every single one of us that comes to the 11 a.m. service, bears a burden. Some face crushing burdens. Some carry light burdens. Some are temporal. Some are long-term. But the Christian who does not have a burden in their life is a unicorn. Meaning, they don't exist. Even Jesus, the perfect, all-knowing God-man. You read the Gospels, he was a burdened man. Crushing burdens that made him weep even though he was without sin. So the universal application of this point, if you remember nothing else from this morning, remember this, every single Christian carries burdens. Every member, every attender, every visitor. You know, one of the major things we emphasize with our Sunday morning hospitality team, it's a team that's led by members Brian and Sarah Pringle. It consists of greeters at the door. It consists of those at Grace Connect. It consists of those in kids' check-in. It consists of our security team. We emphasize, among other things, that on a Sunday morning, a good morning is never just a good morning. 
A hello is never just a hello because you never know what kind of week that person had walking in. That team is literally the front door of our church, literally the outworking of a church that seeks to be hospitable, that indicates in our, in our body language, in our tone, in our presence there, that no matter what happened this past week, you are welcome here. We want you here. There is room for you here. For the member who buried their mom or dad this past week, you're welcome here. For the member who just found out that their job is making cuts and they're going to find out tomorrow if that includes them, you're welcome here. For the couple whose marriage is a mess, the teen who deals with anxiety or chronic illness, the parent whose children are not speaking to them any longer, to the single person who knows it takes every ounce of energy and strength in them to walk into this place alone, knowing that many others are going to come in with a family. Hello. Good morning. We're so glad to see you. And we also know that the majority, maybe not all, but the majority of first-time visitors to Grace Church choose to come because of some form of burden they are carrying. Maybe they relocated and they're in a new city or, or you know, they came from elsewhere in the country or they came from the city and now they're in this area and they have to start over. And it's a new church, new communication. They don't know many people. That's a burden on their shoulders. That's hard to start over. It's hard being new. Perhaps they came from another church where something happened and they're searching for a new church. It is hard to leave a church. That's a burden that you're walking in with on day one. Many times it is a form of crisis in their life, perhaps a death in the family and they're in deep grief. Maybe there's just a general despair of the pandemic and the fear of the world and they're anxious and they're depressed and they're not sure why and so let's go to church. Maybe they're lost in what they believe or they don't believe. Maybe they understand there's some kind of hole in their life. But physical, emotional, and or spiritual burden, there is a struggle walking in. Everyone has a burden. And there can be a mentality as Christians that I shouldn't have burdens. Or if I have burdens, I should not let them be very well known. I should pretend that we don't. Everything is always fine. How are you? Fine. I'll see you next week. I'm good. I'm pretty good. John Stott, who's, his commentary has been so instrumental throughout the series for me, he said, you know what, that's a mentality that is more stoical than Christian. That's more enlightenment than it is Bible. And since all believers have burdens, all believers are also on the burden-bearing ministry team. There you go. Did you know that? You just got added to two teams this morning. Everybody's on the burden-bearing team in the local church. And Psalm 55, 22 says this, a psalm written by King David. He says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. That's a great verse. That's a comforting verse. Perhaps a verse that's been instrumental for you in a certain season of life, maybe even right now, that the Lord says, cast your burdens on me and I will sustain you. But what needs to be made clear is the way God sustains you most often is through other people, especially in your local church. That God sustains his people and lifts their burdens through others. And so it is also a wrong approach to say, you know what, I'm going to cast my burden on God and no one else. 
I don't want to burden anyone else. I don't want to be that kind of person that has that kind of problem. God will take care of me, so I don't need to include others in my burden as well. That is faulty reasoning. There's an illustration, I remember my dad telling once, perhaps you've heard it, maybe you've heard him say it, um, but th- let's call this, there's a man, let's call him Fred. If your name is Fred, no hard feelings, all right? Fred lives on the coast of Florida, and hurricane season just started up, and a hurricane is headed their way on the coast of Florida. And on the days leading up, an evacuation notice is announced, and Fred says, no, I'm going to stay, the Lord will take care of me. Day of the storm comes, and it's pretty bad. The roads are beginning to flood. There's only big emergency vehicles on the roads now, and a fire truck pulls up to Fred's home. Come on, Fred, we'll take you out. Fred says, no, the Lord will take care of me. Later that day, the streets are now a river. Fred has to move to the second floor because the first floor is gaining water. And now a police boat shows up. Says, Fred, come on, climb in. We'll get you out. Fred says, no, the Lord will take care of me. It gets to be that night now. The flooding is worse. The second floor is now underwater. Fred is sitting on his roof. But the Coast Guard helicopter shows up, lets down a rope. Fred, grab a hold of it. Fred yells, no, the Lord will take care of me. And then the waters rise. And Fred dies. And Fred goes to heaven and says, Lord, what happened? I thought you were going to save me. And God said back to Fred, Fred, I sent you an evacuation notice. And then I sent a fire truck. And then I sent a boat. And then finally a helicopter. What more did you need? Don't ask me the theological questions or reasoning of that illustration. All right? You get the point. God sustains us. God alleviates our burdens by giving us one another to bear our burdens. And he calls us to be a means of grace to bear their burdens. And if we're not careful, again, to the invisible sin of pride, we could play the role of the stoic that says, I don't struggle, I'm fine, me and the Lord, he'll take me to glory. Or, You could play the role of just judging other people instead of bearing their burden. Again, similar to number one. Oh oh man, I would never struggle like that. That's pretty serious. You're a Christian? And you got that struggle? It's why Paul again gives a quick warning. Do you see this? He gives exhortation, warning. Exhortation, warning. For those who are called to burden-bearing ministry, he says, for if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And then he goes on to what, again, could seem contradictory at first pass, verse 4, but let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for, for each will have to bear his own load. Here's what I think Paul is saying, that pride is the death knell of burden bearing in the local church. If you think you're too high for this work, or you're too busy, or you've already put your time in and you're not called to it anymore, you're deceived. When you think you're something, when you're nothing, you're deceived. And the pride is found most in comparison. That when others in your faith family face a burden, maybe even share that burden with you, don't be prideful in thinking, well, man, glad, I'm glad I'm not struggling with that. 
Or again, kind of an accusatory, how could you face such a drastic burden? Rather, Paul says, test your own work. You grade your own paper, not others. You carry their burden, but don't grade their paper. You measure yourself with Christ and no one else. Because if you're measured against Christ, you'll stay humble. You start to measure against others, you could get prideful. And then verse 5, for each will have to bear his own load. Again, I agree with John Stott here when he says that Paul is referring here to judgment day. He's referring to that final day of judgment on that day when we will all come before the Lord. And at that time, we can't use other people's burdens to make our case. God, you should have seen so-and-so and what they struggled with. Whew, glad I didn't struggle with that, right? Right, Lord? You with me? Paul is saying God does not grade on a curve. He isn't judging you based upon how good or bad others in the church are. He says, you're standing there before the Lord. That's your burden to bear. Test your own work. So to sum that up, here's why I think the first, that first two says, Paul is saying, bear with one another's burdens now, because on that final day, we will account for ourselves. So as we close, again, that question lingering from the start, what does it mean for a church to be spirit-filled? There's five total, but so far, we know that a church will be a church of restorers and burden bearers. It means that when we intentionally walk in the spirit, acknowledging we cannot do it on our own, asking that he provide us the strength, trusting his promises to strengthen, and then empowering our walk to look like Christ. Because the spirit never exists to make much of himself. The Spirit exists to illuminate Christ in our life, to illuminate the work He has done so that our lives can look more like Him. The Spirit exhorts the church to remember the way of Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate restorer, putting back together what has been fractured in us, putting back in order what has been disordered, restoring us to a right relationship with God as those made in his image. And in doing so, or in order to do so, Jesus is the ultimate burden bearer. As he bore the ultimate burden of death and eternal separation from God on the cross. So that on that day when we do stand before the Lord, we don't just try to convince the Lord how good we are. We claim only him. It's because of what Christ has done. Christ has freed me. Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, verse 24, he himself bore our sins. He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus is the head of that team of the spirit and team of restoration. Jesus is the head of that team of burden bearing. And so the more we fix our minds on him, the more we will walk in the freedom he has purchased for us, the more we will actively engage in that kind of ministry in our local church where God has placed us. Grace Church, I yearn for us to be a spirit-filled church, committed to one another, 
where anyone, anyone can walk through those doors and encounter the love and restorative power of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we, we're thankful for practical examples. We're thankful for practical chapters in the Bible that you don't leave us to our own devices to understand what this might look like to be filled with the Spirit. We thank you for the wisdom and the inspiration that you gave Paul to write to this church in Galatia that is struggling in unity to know what it means to be filled with your Spirit, to know what it means to be in healthy relationship with one another. And I pray, Lord, that more and more our church would not desire to be a perfect church, but that we would be a healthy church that moves towards fellow family members struggling, that moves towards those carrying a burden, and that we would do so in the power of your Spirit for the glory of your name. And it's in your Son's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. On that note, let's rise now and sing fittingly Cornerstone as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper.